This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Good afternoon and welcome everybody to the first Keyboard Kimura podcast of 2016. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite, joined today by my punch drunk predictions colleague. He is already out to a one fight lead after one event, which is really, really hard for me to take. He is Patrick Fiklinski. Good to have you, man. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Thanks so much. Uh, glad to be back and a quick turnaround for me. So this is a treat. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, we're going to, as I said on the last one, we're going to try to get you on a little more regularly. It helps that um, Paul Chapman just got back to work on Monday. So let Chappie get back into the office, get settled, clear up whatever accumulates after <laughs> three or four weeks of holidays must be nice. And uh, grab you, get you back into the mix and, and talk some UFC as we kick off the new year. Sounds good to me. Thanks a lot, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll jump right into it. The main event for this week, uh, as you and I discussed in sort of setting it up, Conor McGregor versus double question mark, because mm-hmm. after last week, we sort of had an announcement of or a, a report that Conor McGregor would be fighting lightweight champion Rafael Dos Anjos and Holly Holm would be fighting Misha Tate on the same card, UFC 197. <laughs> In March in Las Vegas, that report, courtesy of Jeremy Botter of Bleacher Report, subsequently confirmed or further confirmed or whatever you want, however you <laughs> want to put it, by a few other journalists, MMA Junkie, Brett Akamoto of ESPN.com. No official announcement from the UFC, though. Here we are a week, almost a week later now. Um, we've had John Cavanaugh, Connor's coach, say something along the lines of, will be fighting, and, and also Owen Roddy his striking coach saying we'll be fighting on March the 5th in Las Vegas. We're not sure who we're going to be fighting, but it doesn't matter. Um, so apparently Connor's fighting. Is it good, bad, tricky? What, what does it mean for the UFC that Connor is in sort of this position to be such a factor atop these cards that we're sort of waiting and guys are now, you know, potentially, you know, we've heard rumor that Dos Anjos was sort of holding out saying, like, if we're doing this, I want more money, um, which is the McGregor influence, which is what Connor has said all along. So Mystic Mac is right again. He is the big money fight. But is that a good thing, a bad thing or just sort of par for the course for the UFC right now? Well, I think in terms of, uh, you know, if, if you look at it from a business perspective, I mean, it's definitely a good thing. You, you know, you want to get Connor in there as many times as you want if you're the U. I mean, uh, as many times as you can if you're the UFC, uh, because everything he touches turns to gold. Um, you know, from from that perspective, it's definitely good. You want to keep eyes on him. And uh, a quick turnaround is is definitely not a bad thing when you're, you know, uh, building a superstar. And, and you know, he's he's uh, certainly reached that level now. And now it's about sort of keeping people interested and keeping eyes on him. And I think that 
you know, uh, when you have a fight in March set up for him, like uh, UFC 197, I think that's definitely good for business. Um, <clears throat> as far as for Connor personally, um, you know, it might be a little bit tricky. The the only saving grace, I think, of this whole situation is that, you know, he didn't take any damage in that uh, Jose Aldo fight, as we saw. So, you know, um, you know, I think that he's healthy um, and he'll be ready to go. But uh, it'll be interesting to see who uh, who ends up being the fight. If uh, Dos Santos is the fight like uh, was previously reported, uh, then that uh, is certainly an interesting matchup in my eyes. Does it become problematic for the UFC, though, if everybody that's going to get lined up with Conor McGregor whenever that fight is coming up and they know they're sort of the guy that the UFC is targeting, they pump the brakes and say, before we do this, I want to renegotiate my contract. I want more pay-per-view points, whatever the case may be, because Conor has been such a bankable star and such a surefire attraction for the UFC? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's red panty night whenever Connor fights, right? You know, so I think that, um, you know, when, when there's when there's a fight with Connor, you know, guys are going to want the big money fights. And and I think it's, uh, you know, natural for for these guys to want to hold out for for as much money as possible, because he is he is the big money fight. And, uh, you know, if uh, if you're being pitted against a guy and you're, you know, in your belt is up for for the taking, like in Dos Santos case, uh, for example, you know, you you want as much money as possible to make out of that fight. And I think that's what's what we're seeing here. Well, and it's crazy, too, that Dos Santos may may have to be sort of or potentially be lobbying for a raise based on a fight where he's the heavier of the two champions. He is, I believe, right now the betting favorite. You know, some some online books have got odds up where he is the favorite for this hypothetical, not yet confirmed fight. And yet, and he's coming off a great performance against Donald Cerrone, where he absolutely trucked Cowboy. And yet, he's having to go in potentially. Rumor has it, and say, "Well, if I'm doing this fight, you got to pay me more." Like to me, that's a guy the UFC should be paying more regardless like that's a dude you take care of anyways i think it this situation and and to me most of the connor story going forward for this year is going to be about money and its impact on ufc business and the guys that he's fighting and just sort of how all of that works together because i think it is going to be a very interesting thing where as you said Everybody knows Connor is that money fight. I mean, Connor said it himself in September, got a big laugh, and now he's mm -hmm. proving it all to be true. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if every every step of the way, whoever Connor's fighting, because Connor McGregor is not going to fight outside of pay per view events, outside of the main event of pay per view events. Mm -hmm. So whoever he's matched up with, it's a chance for them to go in and say, okay, this is the fight you want for me. This is what I want to do it. And it's going to be really interesting to see how much the UFC acquiesces, how much they give into those things and, and sort of how far they'll be able to be pushed. Like, will there be a point? Do you think there'll be a point for the UFC where they just say, you know what, your demands are too much. We'll go to the next guy. Yeah, I mean, I think that could feasibly happen, um, you know, uh, 
with with a fight, um, you know, with the Sanchos, if if that were to happen, you know, you have champion versus champion. You can't really replace, uh, you know, a, a a champion fight. So you have to have him and and sort of, you know, kind of work with him and and have his you know financial needs probably met to as close as as possible that he wants. Um, but you know, if you were to go down, you know, the line after that, uh, I think. A lot of those fighters are just waiting for that golden ticket, um, you know, as as sort of, you know, uh, strange as that sounds, I think that that is the case. You know, um, Frankie Edgar, obviously, we talked about it last time out, you know, certainly did enough to deserve the fight, but it seems like he's getting passed over. Nate Diaz, who knows what's going on with that. And, um, you know, I think that you really can't replace it, maybe, you know, a champion level guy like DeSancho. So if you want to make that, you know, title for title uh, fight, then, you know, you're going to have to work with DeSanjos and, and say, all right, we'll, we'll give you what you want. I like that you threw Nate Diaz, who knows what to make of that in there, as if Nate <laughs> Diaz saying in the cage, I've got that next fight they already told me is some kind of like, what? Nate said it was going to happen. The Diaz brothers say all kinds of shit, and most of it doesn't happen. So to be like, who knows what Nate was talking about? I know what Nate was talking about. A bunch of bullshit. Same as always. Right. Take uh, it with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> I do think the UFC has – is this is the one time to me that they're in – an okay spot because they do have the fallback option of going to a fight with Frankie Edgar. If Dos Anjos either a isn't ready, B wants too much money, something, 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 and they can't get that together. They can go to Frankie Edgar who didn't put in a lot of work the day before Conor McGregor didn't put in a lot of work and say, this is the fight we're going with. Here you go. It can be the main event of that show. And they're fine from that position. The risk in that, as we talked about the last time we did this, is that if Conor McGregor loses the belt, then there's no more opportunity for him to challenge for two titles. As much as you can say, well, Frankie could. Frankie's talked about it, and he talked about it this week even, of, of saying like he, he approached the UFC about doing that when he was the lightweight champion, and everybody said he could go down and fight for another belt. And they kind of weren't that keen on the idea. Now here's Conor McGregor. You know, who brings in the largest gates back to back in Las Vegas, become absolutely a superstar in this sport and somebody that is starting to cross over. And Dana White and the UFC seem to be perfectly fine with it, which sets up my my next question to you is how important is it for the UFC that Conor McGregor keeps winning and maintains his position for their success going forward off a great year where he was one of the two sort of primary people responsible for that last year in 2015. Oh, it is. It is just everything right now, in my opinion. I mean, especially when you consider, you know, what happened with Ronda last year at UFC 193 and, and getting finished by Holly Holm. He's the guy right now. He's, he's the company, the face of the company uh, fully. Um, and I think that it's so important to have him, you know, continue winning and continue, you know, building his success as a, you know, as a superstar. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And, and, you know, there's nobody out there like him and there's nobody that, that draws more eyes than he does at this point in time. So, you know, I think it's crucial and, and it definitely is a, you know, a risky, 
you know, situation to put him against, you know, someone like a DeSanchos and to put him in that, you know, fight in, in the lightweight division. But, um, you know, if if that's something that he truly wants, you know, I think that Connor, you know, gets what Connor wants. So we're recording this on Monday evening uh, earlier today, Jeremy Botter, who who first confirmed this story or confirmed this potential fight happening was on Twitter today saying bout agreements have been signed and we should hear an announcement. I guess people were expecting an announcement over the weekend, probably during the Fox NFL broadcast, really good platform to, to announce this. We never got it, but Botter was saying today that, you know, agreements are signed. So we should be getting an announcement of Conor McGregor versus Rafael Dos Anjos as the main event at UFC 197 in March sometime this week. Given that that is the case and that by the time people hear this and we get it out, it may have already come out. Um, let's, I mean, we're, we're not far away. That's the really weird thing mm-hmm. in this is that we're, you know, sort of seven, eight weeks away. How would you break down that fight just preliminary and how, who do you see emerging as the winner? Oh, well, I mean, we, we touched on this uh, a little bit last time when, uh, you know, when I was on the podcast and I was kind of going back and forth with it. And I'm, I'm, I'm still having a difficult time sort of seeing how, you know, Connor would deal with a physically imposing guy like, a you know, Rafael de Sanchos. Um, he, he puts on the pressure, you know, and he puts on the pressure early, but then again, you know, uh, we've seen McGregor just do things that other fighters can't do. I mean, that that left hand, you know, just puts guys to bed, I mean, and tucks them in nice and tight. So uh, it, it's it it's such an intriguing fight for for a lot of reasons. But I mean, if if I had to choose a winner and, you know, gun to my head or something, I would I would say, you know, I would say Connor because, you know, I just I, I just have that sort of. belief in him that you know anything can happen with this guy it's it's so crazy I mean the sport is 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 so nuts but after seeing Aldo you know go down in 13 seconds and and just get put away so devastatingly you know it it's hard to doubt the guy honestly even against a guy uh you know as high caliber as DeSanchos and someone as tough as DeSanchos um I really do think you know uh, Connor would still come out on top. And that's the crazy part about this right now. And and it's one of the reasons I advocated this fight needing to happen before <laughs> anything else for these two guys. Um, once they both emerged with, with their titles there in mid December is because we're at the point right now where you're never going to get more belief in Connor McGregor than you are right now. He went out, as you said, 13 seconds. I saw the I saw the replay of the finish again in the last couple of days, and it's just amazing to me seeing Jose Aldo. His body just shut off. Like it just yeah. it stops and he falls to the floor and he's done. And it's 13 seconds and it's one shot and it's just perfect. And there's never going to be a point where more people are siding with Conor McGregor and believe he's capable of doing this. I'm torn if, if sort of, as you said, gun to my head, I had to pick today. I think I lean Dos Anjos just because of the physical size. I think the fact that he's a southpaw helps him because it limits a little bit of Connor's left hand. It's a longer shot for mm-hmm. him. It's, it's a little bit of a different strike for him 
than it is against the righties when he can just counter their lefts and it leaves them open and things like that. Um, and I just think that the the overall physicalness and the ability of Dos Anjos to get inside, get on his hips, make him carry weight, make him defend takedowns or work mm. back to his feet becomes a problem. But at the same time, I will put the little hedge, <laughs> the little caveat of, I also thought Jose Aldo was going to beat him. <laughs> and that, you know, 13 seconds later, I was sitting on press row, just astonished like everyone else. So it's going to be interesting to see. Hopefully we get confirmation sometime this week, maybe before the show comes out. <laughs> um, because it is, it's to me, it is the absolute right fight to make. And it is the biggest fight that UFC can make right now. I love that they're not waiting on it. I love that they're getting it out there and sort of continuing with the momentum that they built in 2015, where, you know, UFC 193 was huge. UFC 194 was huge. 195 didn't do as big numbers in terms of pay-per-view and things like that, but it was a really great fight card that a lot of people were into. Now you get the heavyweights and then you bring back the guy that everybody's talking about. Feels like the right thing to do. So looking forward to that in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks' time and, and getting that official announcement. The craziest part of it all is that we're so focused on Connor and who he might be fighting. A lot of times that co-main event kind of feels like it's just sliding away and, and mm-hmm. we're not really talking about it. But Holly Holm looked phenomenal in November and gets a tough matchup in Misha Tate, who, you know, kind of earned her shot back in July. Yeah. We know everything we need to know about Misha Tate. But that's a really interesting matchup because it is a very different fight than the one home had against Ronda. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it just it's just a totally different fighter, you know, Misha Tate. Um, and I think what we've seen from Misha in her last, you know, especially her last few outings is, you know, a, a sort of grittier Misha. And that fight with Jessica I, it was, you know just a lot of grinding and a lot of, you know, hard work, you know, in, in those sort of, you know, last, last round there to try to win that fight. And I think that, you know, she, she definitely has improved still, um, you know, after her last fight with, with Rhonda, um, you know, it, it, uh, it definitely, you know, she's gone on a four fight win streak and, and earned her way back to the title shot. Um, but, you know, will she be enough for Holly Holm? Uh, I personally don't think so. And I think a lot of people probably don't, but I do think she presents a, you know, a much different challenge for, for uh, Holly. I mean, you know, she's um, a very gritty fighter, very crafty fighter too on the, uh, on the ground as well. Um, So, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting matchup that I think, you know, Holly will, have to, uh, you know, be be cautious of uh, Tate's, you know, skill set. She can uh, uh, underestimate her, and I don't think she will, but it'll be an interesting fight for sure. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Providence Sports Radio. East Spencer Kite talking the hypothetical as of this time. UFC 194 sort of main and co-main event with Patrick Sviklinski talking about Holly Holm and Misha Tate. I'm with you on the Misha Tate gritty, gritty front. Um, and I know Chappie is too. He and I have talked about her a number of times on this show. The fight that really stands out for me is the one against Sarah McMahon. Takes that big shot early, suffers mm. a, a broken orbital bone, comes out and out grapples and out wrestles the Olympic silver medalist to get a victory that 
it looked through the first round, she wasn't going to be able to get it. And it was sort of going to be the, okay, Misha's out of the picture. She wins that fight. She comes out, as you said, against against Jessica I. Finds a way to sort of start beating Jessica I almost at her own game on the feet. And, and that's not something that Misha necessarily had in her toolbox during her Strike Force days, during that first fight with Ronda. Um, a lot of credit goes to Robert Follis and the people at, at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas, where she has set up shop permanently for the last couple of years for really developing her game. But I'm in the same boat as you, that you can't look at what Holly Holm did against Ronda Rousey. Obviously a very different, Misha brings a different style. She's not mm-hmm. as hyper-aggressive as Ronda. She has a little bit better striking defense. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a plan B. We've seen that in fights. But I can't look at what Holly Holm did to a woman that twice dominated Misha Tate and think Misha Tate, even this improved version of her, has a lot to offer or a a lot to give that threatens Holly Holm just because of how good she looked in that fight in in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, no, I mean, totally agree. I I mean, as you said, I I think you can't look at what Holly Holm did to Ronda and think anything else. I mean, it's, you know, right now it's, uh, she's the undisputed, you know, women's bantamweight champion of the world. And that's for a reason. She beat the best woman, a woman who thought, uh, who we all thought, you know, might've been invincible with how she was winning. Um, so I do think that it's a, you know, it's a definitely a very tall order for Misha Tate, but it's a title shot that, you know, is is very well deserved. She she earned her spot to to get there, and she's definitely the the only woman that should be facing Holly Holm at this point, not named Ronda Rousey. Last one on this one before we hit pause and, and move on to our fight of the week segment, looking at this weekend's upcoming championship fight. It's it feels like a win-win bout for the UFC in that regardless of who wins, it sets up a rematch with Ronda Rousey whenever she comes back, either the woman that beat her or her chief rival since her arrival in the UFC. To you, is there one that makes, that is, I guess, the greater of the two for the UFC going forward? Is it better for them to have Holly Holm in that rematch or is it better for them to have Misha and Misha holding the belt and being like, look what I got? <laughs> well, that's that's certainly – that would be an interesting storyline if Misha were to get that belt. But I think 100% undoubtedly I think that the Holly Holm rematch is the one that everyone wants to see. Everyone wants to see how, you know, Ronda will bounce back against someone who, you know, outclassed her uh, for the whole fight and then knocked her out brutal fashion. So I think that is the fight that, you know, everyone wants to see. And that's the fight that, uh, you know, the UFC is probably, you know, hoping, uh, will occur whenever, you know, Rhonda, uh, decides, uh, to return. And I think she's, she's also taking some, you know, much deserved time off, uh, as well. I mean, she, we know she's doing movies and whatnot, but I think she just needs some time to, you know, uh, get sort of her her head right and and get into that you know space again that that she was you know before the Holly Holm fight before all the movies and get back to the basics um you know uh whether or not that'll you know actually you know work in in her 
in her rematch uh, with Holly, if, if indeed it is a rematch, uh, remains to be seen. But I think that that's certainly the fight that people want to see, and that's certainly um, the fight that's going to bring the most eyes. He's Patrick Swicklinski. I am E. Spencer Kite. It is Keyboard Kimura on Province Sports Radio. I'm going to press pause for a second, promote some other shows on the network, and come back with our Fight of the Week segment. Stick around. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for continuing to listen. E. Spencer Kite with Patrick Swicklinski on the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Segment two, getting into our Fight of the Week uh, obviously, there's only one choice to me in this one. It is the UFC bantamweight title matchup that headlines this Sunday's, you heard me correctly, Sunday's fight card in Boston between TJ Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz. Patrick, I don't know about you, but I have been looking forward to this fight since it was announced, since Dominic, pretty much since Dominic Cruz beat Takeya Mizugaki, and it is only ramped up for me even more over each of the last couple of weeks. Um, started down in Vegas, got a chance to talk to both guys, you know, before they squared off um, in advance of UFC 194. There was a little media day, and everybody that was there went up and squared off with their opponents, talked to Cruz shortly after he got off stage, and he said, listen, dude, if I could have punched him right there and we could have fought, I'd have been in. We've obviously seen the counterpunch segment where he just goes to town on TJ Dillashaw in a verbal sparring match that, as he correctly pointed out, this was about talking, so I don't know why you don't want to talk. And now here we are. It, it finally gets to happen. How stoked are you on a scale of 1 to 10 for this fight? Oh, man, I'm at about an 11 right now. <laughs> you know, I... This is one of yeah. (laughs) This is one of my this is one of my most anticipated matches of of 2016 for sure. I'm so curious and um, you know excited to see how this thing will play out. Um, You know, as you said, uh, Dominic Cruz in his last outing, which was a little while ago against Takeya Mizugaki, he just looked like you know like the champion again. I mean, he looked absolutely fantastic just blitzed through his opponent like it was nothing and and he had that finishing power which you know we hadn't seen from him in a while before that so you know obviously he had another setback after that and he was supposed to uh, fight Dillashaw sooner Um, I'm sure the UFC hoped as well but uh, right now as it stands you know I'm I'm beyond stoked to see this fight and i i'm very excited to see how this thing is going to play out because you know it's two it's two guys who really don't like each other as we saw and um you know their styles are gonna make for an interesting fight for sure yeah their styles are similar but they're sort of very different in in what i would say is their strongest area tj dillashaw in working with bang ludwig has figured out a way to add such variety and such an array of moves and power moves into his striking arsenal that looks so different. As we're talking and as we're recording this, I'm writing my my title view series for Keyboard Kimura. It will be up on Tuesday. So as you're listening to this, you can go over to the blog, Keyboard Kimura, and check it out, theprovince.com backslash MMA blog, or sorry, forward slash MMA blog to check it out. Um, just talking about how TJ in, went into that first Barrow fight and looked like such a different fighter than we had seen because he was really incorporating that movement that a lot of people right away said it's very Dominic Cruz-like. Of course, that's what we saw from Cruz. 
which and and Cruz always brought a little more side to side, a little more lateral movement, um, a little more in with one or two. And as you mentioned, not so much the power. The thing that really stands out for me and wrote this in the piece is that he came back off a three year and change layoff and showed new wrinkles, showed improvement after having two ACL surgeries. And I talked to him last week, the groin injury that it was reported is he actually tore like his quad off the bone. And so three major movement based issues that he had to have corrected surgically comes out and starches a dude that hadn't been finished in seven years, like hadn't been TKO, sorry, in seven years. He'd been subbed a couple times, but nobody had stopped him. And so that for me is what ups the ante here, because if Dominic Cruz can be off for three years and change, have his ACL repaired, then have the cadaver ligament rejected and have to go through it all again, then have that horrible quad injury come back and look that good, He's only been away a year. Like, this is a dude that may just come back and and dominate again, and pun intended. Um, and the really interesting thing to me is that he never lost the belt. This is a guy, this isn't a guy that, you know, dropped the title and got beat. He hasn't been beaten in a long, long time. He's only been beaten once in his career. Who stands to gain more in this fight, in your in your opinion? Dominic Cruz winning back the title and sort of affirming himself as the best in the division or TJ Dillashaw beating the guy that hadn't been beating and sort of cementing himself going forward. I definitely think, you know, um, that, you know, both guys have a lot to gain, but you know, if, if we really sort of look at, um, you know, who, who's gonna, you know, benefit the most from this fight to win, I honestly think it's TJ Dillashaw. I mean, he's fought Hennon Barrow twice, um, you know, and and beat him in pretty convincing fashion. Um, you know, both times he came out and and made you know the the former bantamweight champ look very very pedestrian, and that was you know an impressive feat. But you know his other title fight is over Joe Soto, so I think that. You know, getting into the octagon with a guy who never lost the title um, and a guy who a lot of people still believe is the best bantamweight in the world, um, you know, I think if you go out there and make a statement against him, then you're, you know, you're really solidifying yourself as, as the best guy in that division. And I think especially when you consider just how you know, uh, how, how dangerous and elusive Cruz is in there, you know, for Dillashaw to come in there and implement his game plan would be, you know, very interesting to see if, if sort of he can get through all those little tricks that, that, you know, we know Dominic Cruz can do very well and all those little movements that only he can do. If TJ Dillashaw can find a way to get through that and still, you know, um, beat Dominic Cruz, that would be very, very impressive in my books. I think I'm with you. And I, I think for me, part of it is we can, we can always sort of give Dom a bit of a pass because of the injuries. That's always going to be mm-hmm. part of sort of the assessment afterwards, win, lose, whatever. If he gets cry, if he, you know, if, if TJ Dillashaw comes out and dominates him, 
we can, God, I got to stop saying dominate whenever I'm talking about Dom, <laughs> Dominic Cruz. It makes, it sounds awful. Um, if TJ can come out and, and run through him and get a finish, there's going to be those people that automatically say, well, the injuries and whatever. But I agree with you that it, it really solidifies him because nobody has done that to Dominic Cruz. You know, he's only been beaten once. That was Uriah Faber back in the day. Um, but if Dominic Cruz wins, there's going to, I don't know that it, he necessarily has as much to gain, sort of as you said, but I do think it's such a compelling story. I think it's such an interesting thing. It's it's such a feat if this dude comes back, having fought once in the last four and a half years, and comes back to beat a guy that has looked just devastating since winning the title. You know, gone out, as you said, earns the fifth round stoppage over Joe Soto, goes out and puts on a better performance in the rematch against Hen and Barrow. And then Dominic Cruz comes back off the shelf and just beats him. Like that to me would be a better and bigger overall story. But I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily do as much for Cruz as a victory for Dillashaw would, because I think we still sort of expect that Dominic Cruz is, is this great fighter because he showed us in that Mizugaki fight that, Ring rust ain't nothing, and he, he he could be on the sidelines for three years and come back. So that's one of the things that is is so intriguing about this matchup that makes it such must-see TV on Sunday night on FS1 in the States, TSN something or other here. I'm not sure <laughs> which one. It's not a knock on TSN. It's just it's different wherever you are listening to this. So if I say it's on TSN 5 and then you're in Ontario, it's not on TSN 5 for you. Uh, because TSN doesn't do it the way that ESPN does, where one, two, and news are all the same everywhere, just so you're aware of that. Um, the other thing that makes it super interesting, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is as I put it in our sort of email setting this up, the Faber wrinkle. Because Uriah Faber goes out in Las Vegas a couple weeks back, gets a hard-fought victory over Frankie Signs, basically says, I think I'm in position to fight the winner. I've got beef with both love to fight whoever, probably gets it because he's Uriah Faber, because Rafael Asensio hasn't fought since, I believe, the show in Halifax that you were at. Yeah. And there are some other guys that maybe just aren't quite there. Are you interested in Uriah Faber fighting the winner of this fight beyond just the like story rivalry of it? Well, and that's exactly the thing. I think, you know, uh, as you said, I mean, you know, I think that when it comes to Uriah Faber and what, you know, what it would come down to in a fight against, you know, either Dillashaw or Cruz, I mean, storylines are the basis for, for, you know, any, you know, selling any fight. Right. And so this is no different. I mean, whether or not, you know, I want to see him against, um, you know, a Dominic Cruz or a TJ Dillashaw. Not, not really. I don't think that, you know, um, he would go in there and, and, you know, beat either one of those guys. That being said, I mean, I do think that, you know, it might be, uh, pretty compelling stuff to, to watch a UFC embedded with TJ Dillashaw and, and do that back and forth between Faber Dillashaw and, and, and you got Dwayne Ludwig in the mix there. But, um, I think that that's the fight that the UFC is probably going to go for. Uh, you know, Uriah is still one of the bigger names at those lighter divisions. Um, and I think he's he's a guy who's very marketable and, and people still like to see him fight. He's still a very exciting fighter. And, 
and still fights very well. You know, he's not super young anymore, but he comes out there and, and looks very, you know, very good against uh, opponents who, you know, are, are, are tough in their own right. So I do think that, you know, Uriah will get the fight um, regardless of who wins. I I am going to agree with you on the Uriah is going to get the fight regardless of who wins because I think it buys the UFC, you know, four to six months to figure out what's happening with Aljamain Sterling, get Rafael Asuncao back and another fight to see where he's at, get Thomas Almeida a big fight to see where he's at and sort of set up whoever's next for probably the fall, maybe the winter of if we could get three title fights from this division this year. And it is, as you said, probably the most marketable fight they can make in this division because Faber's name. The point where I'm going to disagree with you, though, is that Faber is still this guy that goes out and has great fights. I mean, I watched that fight against Frankie Sines, and I think I tweeted out during the fight, like, Faber of even a couple of years ago, say three years ago, when he or when he last fought Dominic Cruz, for for example, um, one of the 4th of July shows, I believe, 20, I want to say 2010, 2011, 2011, the fight before Cruz fought DJ. Um, that was a super close fight. You could have made the argument that, that Faber won it. He was neck and neck with the best in the world at that time. He had that fight against Frankie Sines, and if it was the Faber of 2011 in there, he puts him away, no problem. He has him rocked, jumps on a guillotine, done, lock it up, we go home, everybody's happy and smiling and, and things like that. But Frankie Sines was able to survive and get back into that fight and push Faber down the stretch. Francisco Rivera won the first round of their fight before catching an unfortunate eye poke and getting choked out in a fight that, in my opinion should have been ruled a no contest. Um, Alex Caceres had some success against Uriah Faber. Yes, he ultimately lost. It took Faber three rounds to beat Bruce Leroy. Just sit and think <laughs> on that one for a minute. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I definitely I definitely do agree with you that he's, you know, taken a step back at this point in his career. I think there's no there's no question that, you know, he's definitely lost a, a step. You know, that being said, I, I, I do think that he still, you know, provides an intriguing challenge, especially when you consider his, you know, submission game and and what he does, you know, uh, with his, you know, creative jujitsu. Um, I think that's interesting. But like you said, I mean, against guys, you know, if, if you're if you're having troubles, you know, putting a guy like Frankie Sines away, nothing against Frankie Sines, who actually I think had a really great performance in his own right, and and that shouldn't be uh, you know discredited, but. Still, he's, you know, maybe not an elite, you know, uh, ban uh, you know, a bantamweight fighter. But I do think that, you know, Faber has taken a step back. But uh, that being said, I do still think he, he has some, you know, tricky, uh, you know, submission abilities up his sleeve that, you know, some guys find, you know, difficult to deal with. Um, and, you know, maybe not for Dillashaw. Or Cruz, I don't think that that'll be as much of a challenge, but uh, still, he, he's definitely uh, a crafty fighter. I mean, there's also the 0 for 3 in Bantamweight title fights, winless in title fights since losing to Matt, sorry, Mike Brown, not Matt Brown. Um, I do think the name value is definitely going to be there. No disrespect to the California kid, who I think is one of the best 
15 or 20 fighters of the last, you know, in the history of this sport, probably in terms of what they've accomplished and, and what they've done for themselves star power wise. I think he gets trucked by whoever wins this fight on Sunday night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely tend to agree with you on that one. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, you know, what happens in the end, but it, uh, it, I don't think that there's much left in the tank there for, for Faber going down the stretch against either one of these guys. I agree. It's Keyboard Kamara Podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite with my punch drunk predictions cohort, Patrick Sviklinski. Getting into our championship rounds, UFC in Canada in 2016. Obviously a subject near and dear to both of us mm-hmm. as Canadians, as Canadians covering this sport for a Canadian news outlet. I got a chance to talk to Tom Wright on Friday, story running in Tuesday's paper online now. Please, everybody, check it out. Hit me up on Twitter if you're looking for it, at Spencer Kite. We talk just in general because, obviously, Tom isn't one to to break out specifics of, of the where's and the when's <laughs> of events. But he said three events with one new market being expected this year in 2016. Obviously, we had two last year, uh, the pay-per-view show in April in Montreal, and then Saskatoon at the end of August. Just starting at that three with one new market, does that feel to you like the right number and sort of the right way to go coming off a year that we only saw two events and and given the feeling up here lately that we're kind of being overlooked or forgotten about by the UFC? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there. I think there's definitely that that feeling uh, from some, you know, fans um, that we are being overlooked a bit. But I, you know, I do think three is 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 a it's a fair number in my opinion to have. Um, you know, the the last few events. You know, I was at the Halifax event. I was at the tough finale in Quebec City. Um, those sort of smaller events. You know, you and I were at UFC 174 in Vancouver. Um, you know, there definitely seemed to be a bit of the the buzz kind of lacking in, in a lot of those, you know, events. So I do think that, you know, uh, we we sort of have to, you know, kind of re rebuild a little bit um, and and sort of get some events going in, in Canada and in, in Calgary for sure. And sort of, um, you know, start, you know from not start from scratch, but almost kind of reprove yourself a little bit. You know, the fans need to come out and show support to these events. Um, and I think if that happens, then we'll get, you know, bigger names and bigger events. And that's how it sort of works, I think. So you mentioned bigger events. Perfect segue. Thank you for that. One of the things <laughs> I asked Tom back last summer in Saskatoon was, do we need to sort of shift our expectation in Canada and would we benefit from seeing more fight night shows? Obviously the show in Saskatoon was a fight night event prior to a couple of years ago. All we had had was pay-per-views in major centers. To me, I think it's better almost of those three shows. If we did one big pay-per-view in one of the major markets and then two fight night events that you can I don't want to say load up because then people are going to think, I mean, like put major fights, hmm. put a put a title fight on it, on it. And that isn't the case, but I think you could put big contender fights on it, some big established names and build a stronger card than the one we had in Saskatoon, but one that isn't necessarily 
as big as the one we have this weekend in Boston to go to some of these smaller markets. Because the thing that Canadians unfortunately forget, even though we are a very expansive country, we don't have a lot of big markets that you can go to and draw 20,000 people. We don't have a lot of venues where you can go and do 15, 18,000 people that you would want to do for a pay-per-view. If you were the UFC, if you were Tom Wright making suggestions on where to host these three shows in 2016, where do you go? You know, I think, um, you know, as, as, as much as, uh, you know, I love Vancouver and the people of Vancouver. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that the UFC is going to be coming back to that city anytime soon. So I think that leaves Toronto and Montreal as the, the two big sort of uh, markets for, you know, um, a, an event, you know, a, pay, a pay-per-view event. And I think it, it would be great to get back into that Toronto market. Um, you know, I was at... UFC 165. I saw Gustafson and John Jones, and there was definitely, you know, a big buzz and a lot of, you know, uh, fan support for it. So I, I do think that it would be nice, you know, if the UFC was able to, you know, hit Toronto at some point this year. And, and that's one of the those cities where you know it's a world-class city you could bring in you know uh you know a title fight potentially or if not a title fight a high profile contender fight um you know it's one of those cities that fighters you know like to go to and and would be open to fighting and i i believe um so i think that toronto would be the one to go to in terms of uh you know, the, the big pay-per-view event of the year, you know, not a slight on Montreal. I mean, I think Montreal, you know, is, you know, another interesting market, but you know, if it's not George St. Pierre, it doesn't have the same flair to it. Um, so I think that Toronto would be my pick. And what about the other couple of shows? Like where, if, if you're booking all three, if you're figuring out the three stops for, for the UFC in Canada this year, where else are you hitting? Yeah, I think Hamilton, Ontario is an interesting one that's been talked about for a little while now. I I think that they have, you know, um, the, the arena to sort of support an event, you know, a fight night event. And I think that would be a good way to go for the UFC, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, dip into that um, market outside of Toronto and, and keep it keep it in Ontario. There's there's a um, loyal fan base there as well. Uh, Hamilton would be interesting as far as, you know, another UFC fight night event, you know, you got to give it up, uh, to Calgary. I mean, you, you got to give Calgary that one, um, for sure. Um, so, you know, I think is, if, if I were sort of booking it, it would look like Toronto with the big pay-per-view, maybe the fight nights in, in Calgary as well as one in Hamilton. Can you go to Calgary with a fight night though after after their debut pay-per-view was riddled by injuries and absolutely fell flat when it hit the octagon and Dana White has been promising them for three years now, four years now, sorry, um, that they're coming back and we're going to make it up to you and it's going to be better. Can they feasibly go with a fight night event and not have everyone in Calgary, including our mutual friend, Danny Austin, (laughs) just tear them a new one. Because to me, they can't. To me, they they need to do something big in Calgary. 
And if that means waiting a year, because I think you're right about Toronto, I think you need to go back to Toronto because it is the biggest market. It is a metropolitan area where you can draw in media from all over the place. You can have one of these big shows like we've had in Las Vegas recently where you just blow it out. Maybe not the Rogers Center, but you can do 20,000 in the ACC. But I don't think you can go to Calgary and be like, hey, guys, here's... Hmm a fight night show headlined by Donald Cerrone and Tim Means. Like, I just don't think that works. <laughs> well, no, I, and I agree with you on that. And I do think that, well, and like you were saying, I think they might have to wait a little longer if that's the case. I do think that, you know, Toronto might, might be more sort of um, suited for a pay-per-view event this year. I don't know if Calgary is. I mean, they keep, you know, the UFC keeps saying, you know, we want to go back to Calgary. And we, like you were saying, we want to make it up to them. But, I mean, what really, you know, can you do without sort of, you know, I mean, you can you can package a pay-per-view um, event for these guys. But if you make it, you know, filled with fights that, are kind of lackluster, then people are going to see right through that as well. So it might be smart of them to sort of wait a little bit and maybe let Toronto take it this year and then do an actual big fight, uh, you know, in, in Calgary next year. But, um, you know, I know that's weighing on the fans over there and, and it's, it's definitely, it's been a long time coming for them to get, you know, an event. But the thing is, you know, I don't think, if they want to, you know, you know, assume that the fans are stupid, that they'll give them a card that that is basically a UFC fight night card wrapped in a pay-per-view, you know. So I think that what they'd like to do ideally is really have, you know, a great, you know, a great headliner, a great co-main event in there and really do it right for the fans. Yeah, not not to piss off the fans in Calgary by saying I think Toronto is the market that that will end up with a pay-per-view the UFC does two pay-per-views in, in Canada this year. I think Calgary absolutely should be... I think Calgary should be at the top of the list in terms of where they try to go. But if it doesn't work, I understand that more than going another year without being in Toronto, which just wouldn't make sense to me. Um, one of the interesting things to think about, and shout out to to follower Brocky Balboa on Twitter mm. for pointing this out today when I tweeted out the article with Tom Wright... Um, Edmonton opens their new Rogers Center. So Rogers owns <laughs> Rogers owns everything apparently in terms of <laughs> naming rights. Um, they open their new Rogers Center in the fall of this year, and so Edmonton has been a combat sports market. Obviously, Mark Pavlich and the MFC there for a number of years. Um, it might be. I mean, they did a WEC show in Edmonton back in the day. That might be an interesting place to go. I think it would be. Another sort of kick in the nuts to people in Calgary <laughs> if they went to Edmonton and not Calgary. But that's one to just sort of keep keep maybe as a potential. I think there is the opportunity to do a fight night show in Windsor that was sort of rumored and, and discussed for last year before that fell apart. I think they like the availability of the border traffic from Detroit. Grew up down there for a couple of years. It's it's busy and it's congested, but it's still easy to get over and do a show in Windsor, get that border traffic. You get sort of a little bit of a market that hasn't been tapped as much because there haven't been many shows in 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 Michigan itself. I think we've had a couple in at the Palace in Auburn Hills, but 
I think that's one. As you said, Vancouver, sorry guys, not coming mm-hmm. back here anytime soon. Thank the athletic commission and just the ridiculous. I mean, thank yourselves for not turning out for UFC 174 <laughs> a little bit too. I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail about that, but mm-hmm. that's part of it. If you walk out, you don't show up and you walk out of a, a championship fight. I know it wasn't the big card everybody was hoping for, but like there's a certain point where you have to just stick around and support the show for them to decide to come back. Um, I mean, you were in, you were in Halifax. Do you see them going back to the East coast, back to the Maritimes anytime soon? Or is that sort of an every two, three years deal? Yeah, I think it, it, it's going to be an every two, three years deal. You know, it was, it was a good show. It was a good little show that they, that they put together. And then, you know, the, the, you know, the headliner with McDonald Safadine was, you know, a solid, you know, fight. And then people, the people that were there, I will say in Halifax, you know, came out and, and they supported it really, really uh, well. Um, but again, I think it's one of those places that, you know, if they're going to look to, you know, do more fight nights uh, in Canada, then it's going to be in, I think, markets that they maybe haven't uh, tapped yet. So Atlantic Canada might have to wait a, a little longer. Um, like you said, I think Windsor is a really good idea. Yeah, uh, Hamilton's another one, and um, I think they're going to go more in that route uh, than go back to Atlantic Canada at this point, um, as it stands. As someone who went to high school and grew up in Hamilton, I would love a show at Cops Coliseum. It would be great. Back to the old stomping grounds. We could spend fight week on Hess Street and Hess Village. Um, we'll end on this, and it's the last point that I that we have on sort of our rundown setting this up, and it's a question I asked Tom Wright both in Saskatoon and again this weekend. Um, do we need a Canadian star to have these pay-per-view events be big, or does a big card trump all? I ask because, as Tom and I talked about, um, didn't make the article, but it's going to make something else. I will repurpose it for, for elsewhere. Last year was a year where we saw a few global stars emerge. Ronda Rousey, Conor McGregor, I would say to a lesser extent, Ioana Janjacek. Um, But we've always talked about in Canada, we were spoiled off the bat with George St. Pierre. And we've sort of always said, oh, well, if Rory won that title and if Rory was a champion, then we'd have. But do we need that? Or do we just need bigger, some of those bigger names to come north of the border? I think that you know um, you you definitely need some of those bigger names to first off come come over the border and come fight here. That that's what'll draw eyes. The big fights are are what you know people want to see. But I will say that with a bit of a caveat, you know it it you know it doesn't hurt to have a big Canadian star either. So you know when George Saint Pierre was sort of at the top of his game, you know you'd go everywhere in Canada and you'd see MMA posters, you know you'd see UFC posters everywhere, um, you'd see the merchandise, you'd see the swag, you know. It's it's a little bit different now that you know he's not um, you know active in the UFC. So I do think that that changes things a little bit. Not having a Canadian star um, sort of to look to. I mean, if you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda with Rory. I mean, you know, he's still an amazing fighter, and I think he will get a title shot at some point in the future as well. But um, I do think that what you know will ultimately draw eyes is a big fight. So, you know, if they were able to, you know, make something happen, I don't know with who, um, you know, to, to bring up here, but 
if they if they could do a, a, a fight that a lot of fans would want to see, then I think that trumps everything and um, would generate uh, interest in in uh, you know the fight scene again. First and foremost, kudos to you for the first official use of the term swag on the Keyboard Kamara podcast. <laughs> Not one that Chappie or I drop very frequently, so that one is all yours going forward. <laughs> my rebuttal or my, I guess, redirect question then is, I agree with you that we need bigger fights and that we need, and, and that's something Tom Wright has said as well. Um, most people have said, bring us those big cards and we'll turn out. My counter to that is UFC 165 was Jonathan Dwight Jones against Alex Gustafson, John Jones at the height of his superpowers, with a co-main event of Henan Barrow versus Eddie Wineland for the interim bantamweight title when Barrow was steamrolling fools. And it was another decline in attendance in Toronto. Obviously, that's going to happen when you start with the biggest one ever but we had an in-between at UFC 140 where that number went from the 55,000 that was bonkers at 129 down to 18. 156 went down, or sorry, 165 went down to 15,000. Buy rate was low. And so I question whether we sort of just have set the bar so ridiculously high, like our expectations are so ridiculously high that unless we get... You know, this fight that maybe is, to bring it full circle, going to happen in March in Las Vegas, UFC 197. Unless we get that in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, it feels like people just aren't going to turn out because they're always going to say, well, why don't we get that fight? When that fight is never coming to this country, unless they do another Rogers Center where they want to blow it out. Because those fights make significantly more money in Las Vegas than anywhere else. It's why we've been to Vegas so frequently over the last year. I mean, you look at the gate for the last show in Toronto, it's 1.9 million. The last show in Las Vegas, sorry, not the last show because we had 195, but 194 did Mm 10.7. So almost 10 times that for a smaller venue that holds, you know, did smaller venue in that, it doesn't hold as much at capacity, did more in attendance, I believe, than UFC 165. So that's going to be my question is, is Will bringing, you know, if if we get a John Jones fight or a Daniel Cormier, whoever has that belt, John Jones, uh, later in the year with something else behind it that's a big name fight, are people going to turn up or are they going to say, well, we didn't get Connor, we didn't get Ronda Rousey, and so screw you, we're not coming. <laughs> well, I definitely think there's there's a feeling of that among, you know, some some fans that, you know, if it's not if it's not gonna be Connor, if it's not gonna be Rhonda, then, you know, they're not interested. But, you know, even even looking back, I guess, at that UFC one sixty five fight, you know, uh at the time, you know, John Jones was obviously, you know, at the top of his game and whatnot, but he wasn't a I wouldn't say particularly, uh, you know, popular, uh, you know, uh, figure in terms of, you know, wanting to see him sort of at the press conferences and wanting to see him, you know, outside of the octagon. He doesn't was, matter. He was the best fighter on the planet. <laughs> and that's very, and, and that's my, yeah. and that's my counter. And so I guess then it becomes the question of, are fans in this country looking for the best fights possible 
or the biggest names that they are into because you're 100% right John Jones wasn't the wasn't quite I mean he was coming off of the ultimate fighter with Chael where they kind of bonded instead of being absolute rivals People were kind of lackluster on the whole Alex Gustafson fight because they were sleeping on him. The mm-hmm. UFC was promoting it as UFC 165. Look how tall these guys are. Um, <laughs> but it turned out to be just a great fight that everybody that paid attention and everybody that thought it through knew it was going to be. And yet people were like, eh, whatever. And then when they talked about John Jones coming back for another one, they were like, really, another John Jones fight? Like, if you can't get up for seeing the best fighter on the planet, <laughs> you are shitty fans. Yeah. And I know Canada's going to get mad at me, and I'm sorry, but I think we're kind of just shitty fans. Well, you know, that <laughs> that's definitely that's definitely one way of looking at it. And I agree with you to a certain extent, um, you know, that – uh, whenever there, you know, has been a sort of uh, a big fight like that, you know, it's it's never enough, as you were saying, you know, when you compare it to to the standard that was set by, you know, that huge fight, you know, um, at the old uh, you know, sky dome there. And 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 I think that I don't think it will ever get to the point where the fans are completely satisfied and you know, uh, totally accepting of any, you know, fight unless it is someone like uh, a Conor McGregor or a Ronda Rousey, just for the fact that those guys have so much mainstream appeal and just for the fact that there's so many eyes on them as it is that I think that's what the, you know, the fans would want to see to feel as though they're getting their money's worth when in fact that might, you know, if that, in fact, is, you know, the truth of what they deserve, I don't know. Because, you know, I I sat through that UFC 165, and I'll tell you, it was a hell of an event, and it was a hell of a show. So I do think that, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, fans who certainly feel that way, like you were saying, that, you know, it's never going to be good enough yeah like i completely understand you want to be salty vancouver about ufc 174 not the best lineup sure ufc 161 in winnipeg agreed (laughs) calgary we've covered it you deserve a do-over but some of these other shows like we've had we talked about having george st pierre being such a great draw even his last fight in montreal against nick damn diaz (laughs) that everybody wanted to see so much that everybody was so keen on only drew 16,000 people at the Bell Center where they had done prior to UFC 129, the two biggest shows in history. And that was a great card. Johnny Hendricks and Carlos Condit were the co-main event. Now, admittedly, there was some suspect stuff on the rest of the main card. Mike Ricci fighting Colin Fletcher. Kind of crazy. <laughs> Hindsight, TJ Dillashaw, second fight of the night, filling in for somebody. So <laughs> turned out to be a pretty good card. But just feels to me like we as fans in this country have set that bar of where we're going to be happy and it's beyond reach. And so I don't know if the UFC is ever going to be able to satisfy people to the point that it's worth coming here with a big show just because of the revenue they can do elsewhere. And I know people hate it when journalists or guys like you and me talk about Mm -hmm. the UFC business side of things and sort of advocate for them. But you have to remember, they are a business. They are a company Mm -hmm. that is looking to make profit. And so 
if people aren't going to turn out for a loaded show in Toronto because it's not the two names at the top of it that they're looking for, why would you take that? Why wouldn't you just take that to Las Vegas? Which is sort of the long way of saying Canada, when these fights get announced this year, when this pay-per-view or two pay-per-views or three pay-per-views, whatever it's going to be, get announced, don't just immediately crap on the headliners if it's not Conor McGregor or it's not Ronda Rousey's comeback fight or the heavyweight title fight. Accept the card, look at it, see what's there. Don't just say, ah, it's the bantamweights again or, (laughs) oh, it's the flyweights again. Because these are great fights, and this is what we are going to get in this country. So if you want to see live events in this country, those are the fights you're almost assured of getting. And it has to be enough, because chances are Conor McGregor isn't fighting anywhere. The only place Conor McGregor will fight outside (laughs) of Las Vegas during the rest of his UFC career, you can mark this down, January 11, 2016, (laughs) the one other place he will possibly fight is Dublin, Ireland. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense because that is where business is best for them. And we've seen time and again that that's how the UFC makes decisions. (laughs) So Canadians, just be a little bit smarter. Recognize that there are tremendous fighters outside of the four biggest stars in the sport. And you will go and enjoy these shows. I promise you, been to a lot of them. They are almost always great. Trust me, please. I'm sorry I called you shitty fans, but do a little better and 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 enjoy what we get because I think we're going to get better than we've gotten recently, but it's not going to be at that A-plus level that you're expecting. And if you're holding out for A-plus, you're still going to be disappointed and we're going to argue about it on Twitter. And I don't want to argue about stuff on Twitter with people in 2016. <laughs> new Year's resolution. It's my New Year's resolution. <laughs> that is That feels like a good way to wrap up the show. Um, I am E. Spencer Kite. He is Patrick Swicklinski. This has been a pleasure, man. I know you've got some stuff coming up this week. Go ahead and plug that. Tell people where to follow. Tell people where to check it out. You got it. Well, you know, you can always follow me at, at uh, Pat Schwiklinski on Twitter, at P-A-T-C-W-I-K-L-I-N-S-K-I. I know that's a tricky one for the people, um, but write it down if you need to. Um, got coming down the pipe. I'll, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, we got a story coming up on Anthony Pettis uh, sometime this week, um, and uh, you'll look out for that one on uh, for the province. And then the punch drunk predictions will be up on Saturday this week because we're that that day back with the show being on Sunday. Pat's up by a fight on me after a controversial win for Robbie Waller <laughs> last time out. This week you will have all of the usual pre-fight stuff from us on Keyboard Kimura, Five Reasons to Watch, the predictions as I mentioned. Title view should be up by the time you listen to this. Definitely check all of that out. You can follow me on Twitter at Spencer Kite. Continue to listen to this show. We greatly appreciate it. It has been a blast doing it for the last year and a half. Hopefully going to keep doing it and and doing even more this year coming up. Um, Subscribe on iTunes. Check it out on Stitcher. All of the usual places you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a rating. All of those things help us. We greatly appreciate it. Until then, this has been the 2016 debut of the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Thank you for listening and enjoy the fights. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com 
Follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Keyboard Kimura. Kimura.